You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, in St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Hey there, Monster Talkers. We're pulling this episode from our YouTube series, Debased on a True Story Archives. Karen's finishing up a new book, and I'm catching up on my health care after my little struggle with COVID. But if you haven't been watching our YouTube series, looking at movies and the alleged true stories behind them that they're said to be based on, this is another one, and it's a favorite from the ghost story genre. This is... A discussion of 1980s ghost story movie, The Changeling, starring George C. Scott. I hope you enjoy it. Monster Talk. Excellent. So I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltner. I'm we've Matt got a guest Baxter. tonight. Yeah. <laughs> His name is, is Matthew Baxter, and we've brought him on the show because we're doing a special series at the moment called Debased on a True Story. Right. And we've got a lot of the entries for this. This is going to be a lot of fun, I think. So, uh, Matt, do you want to do a quick introduction? Sure. My name is Matt Baxter. I've been a a paranormal researcher for close to 30 years now. Um, I uh, have conducted many, many uh, haunted tours uh, in the Denver area and have given a lot of uh, different talks on uh, science and the paranormal over the years and have been, you know, kind of a science educator in that sense. And one of the things that uh, I've focused on over the years is these these movies that uh, like to say they're based on a true story. Yep. 
And coming from this area, you've actually had a lot of experience with some of the lore. Even though this movie is set in Seattle, um, it, a lot of it's actually based on stuff that happened <laughs> in the Denver area. So we're going to be talking about the 1980 movie, The Changeling. So not to be confused with Changeling, which was a, was a 2008 uh, movie about the Wineville chicken coop murders with Angelina Jolie. So not that one. We're talking about uh, the, the 1980 uh, movie and right, the creepy ghost story movie. Yeah. 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 So this movie uh, was released March 28th, 1980. Uh, oh, I should mention this is going to be a spoiler show. If you haven't seen The Changeling, we're going to ruin it for you. So um, mm-hmm. just keep that in mind. So I, I think it's a fantastic movie, but it came out in 1980. What are you doing? You should have taken a look at it by now. <laughs> so. Yeah, good point. <laughs> All right. This movie was directed by Peter Medak, and I'm going to give a little summary. Okay. So following the tragic death of his wife and daughter, composer John Russell abandons his successful career in the concert scene of New York City and heads to Seattle, Washington to start fresh away from all the reminders of that tragedy. And what could possibly lift him from his depression faster than moving into a long uninhabited mansion as the sole occupant? And before you can say boo, he's experiencing a series of unexplained noises and phenomena that would have any sensible person packed and moved. But despite his grief, Mr. Russell played by the indomitable George C. Scott, is going to get to the bottom of this mystery. He's not, it turns out, a runaway from his problems kind of guy after all. So he's assisted in his investigation by Claire Norman, an agent from the Seattle Historic Society, who also seems more than a little interested in Mr. Russell. As a note, that is actually played by his real-life wife, Trish Vandeveer. Uh, Russell finds out that his house is haunted by the ghost of a child who is apparently living in an attic-level room at one point, but that room has been hidden behind a bookshelf. And in a very complicated plot twist around the classic trope of laying a ghost, the composer and historian team up to find out what happened to the little boy in the attic. And the title of the changeling hints at the nature of the haunting by referring to fairy lore about changelings, which we'll talk about. And this story has murder, intrigue, classic haunting tropes, tragedy, music, horseback riding, politics, Intimidation, automatic writing, self-propelled ghost wheelchairs, apportations, telekinesis, and more. Plus, its cast includes the aforementioned team of George C. Scott and Trish Vandeveer, as well as the venerable Melvin Douglas and character actor John Colicos. It is a delight. I love this movie, and I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I loved it, too. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I saw it a long time ago and then watched it again recently. And uh, it's just great. Every time you see it, you, you pick up more things that you didn't capture the last time yes it, it is it's it's very much in the tradition of like the haunting it's just a creepy film that increases in tension as it goes along and then has mm-hmm. a very exciting if uh challenging conclusions because <laughs> we've got matt baxter with us what's this got to do with denver well well first off it was a very very fun movie and again you know mm-hmm. blake had already said it but we have to have to say it again be prepared spoiler spoiler spoilers ahead now, going into this, we, we should probably talk about a couple of things. One being the fact that uh, this, uh, what we probably want to talk about is what a changeling is in terms of, you know, fairies and, and things like that, the folklore. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that, Karen or Blake. Well, yeah, I don't think this is a changeling. This story is about a changeling in the, the traditional sense. I, I don't think we've actually done an episode on changelings, have we, Blake? I think we've talked about them over the years. 
Right. We haven't actually done a dedicated episode on changelings, but we have talked about them briefly. They, they fit into fairy lore. It's the idea that a fairy or fairies will come along and exchange your child or loved one with a substitute. And for years and years, I just thought this was peculiar fairy lore. Like, I just thought it was an odd bit of folklore. But a few years back, I went back and read some of the writings of Martin Luther about this topic and realized after reading that, that what he was really describing sounds very, very much like what happens if you're a parent of an autistic child. The child develops normally up to a certain point, and then suddenly there's changes that happen. And well, they, they might not speak or they right. stop smiling or exactly. they might appear oh, yeah, to be yeah. in their own world. Exactly. And also, it's not just young people. Changeling lore also had bearing on older people, adults. So if someone had a stroke or started suffering dementia, those, those kind of changes in their personality behavior could also be attributed to fairies. So in the one sense, it's an explanation. But in another darker sense, it was a way that people justified getting rid of these, these people, these people who were different than us. So it's, it's very scary and creepy in that sense, in, in more than a supernatural way. We find bizarre ways to explain things we don't understand. And yeah. uh, this was uh, definitely a great example of that. Yeah, I wouldn't say in the, the movie, though, that that's a traditional kind of changeling. Uh, no, no, right. And, and the, the way it falls into the movie, and we'll, we'll, I think we'll get to that organically as we go through the plot, but the, uh, yeah. it is a, an interesting and clever title in the sense that it does have, and it involves a story about someone being swapped for someone else. So, Absolutely. So, yeah, I think we've got several things going on here. We've got uh, the, the movie itself. Uh, then we have the, the folklore that is behind the movie. And then we have the facts. So exactly. I think we want to treat those three different segments. Well, I certainly want to talk about the movie uh, a bit because it is this is a great movie. Um, mm-hmm. Regardless of whether it's based on a true story or not, this is a fun movie. And so many movies these days, I think, really fall short when it comes to achieving that really good creepiness. This one, on the other hand, really does a great job of keeping the creepiness going. So uh, when we, we look at things like, uh, well, well, you know, the, the guy moves into this huge house, for one. And it is a, a, a very freaky thing because it's one guy. It's one guy in this huge house. And that, that really can cause a lot of problems because of all the, the noises that a big house can make when you're by yourself. Um, yes. And so, so he's already starting to experience some of these things. And uh, we have the, the, the trope of the, the red rubber ball. And which is such a, a great one. I mean, we've, we've seen it in a lot of movies, but it seemed like mm-hmm. the first really big movie that happened in was yes, the first wildly. I mean, like this was an extremely successful film and, and it really made this a trope worth worth copying. Well, I will add too that just over the years with all of the uh, investigations that I've done, a lot of places have had that trope. A lot of places like uh, Waverly Hills Sanatorium had this this same idea of oh there's this red rubber ball which just appears out of nowhere and or it might even be used uh as a tool to try and lure ghosts out to to use it as a, a toy to attract ghost children and things like that. But it, it's really permeated ghost hunting lore over the years. Well it also fits into that the, the thing in horror movies where they subvert what should be fun and innocent imagery into creepy and scary. A, a child's musical toy box, a, a doll, mm-hmm. you know, 
even the little monkey with the symbols, all those things are not really scary. Nor, well, maybe the monkey's scary, but in general, they're not scary. <laughs> and then they become song. terrifying in, in the context of a horror scenario. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a great moment because that particular ball happened to have been his daughter's. Exactly. Which he left. Well, he didn't leave it behind. Did he? he was in, it, was in a, it was a piece of furniture and then it just appeared. So it was just confusing and scary. I think he had it in a writing desk or something. Yeah. yeah. Again, spoiler wise, he ends up at one point uh, throwing it off a bridge. So he's sure that it's gone. And then it shows up again all wet. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah. So, anyway. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was a really interesting thing to have that ball show up like that. Um, now, uh, the thing is, is, you know, we start to wonder, we, we've seen this in a few other movies. What was kind of the, the first one? And I, I think the, the, the Changeling was the biggest movie to come along to have this happen in it. Um, and then it became a lot more popular. Now I have a, a little thing I grabbed off of YouTube of a bunch of different uses of the, the ball bouncing down the stairs. And we can kind of talk about that a little bit as it goes. And enjoy the music that accompanies well, it. I, I've got it muted. Oh, just so <laughs> it was like folk music. Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it's very uh, mariachi, yeah. I kind of sort of friendly, yeah. or like yeah. a kids' TV show or something. I don't know. Yeah. Something. It's not exactly. It doesn't exactly go with it. I, I think, but this gives us some. At least if yeah, we can talk, talk over this. It. Yeah. Yeah. So it starts off. Uh, this movie it pops out of her mouth, which I don't know why. <laughs> but uh, here's the Changeling, nineteen uh, eighty. So remember, the Changeling nineteen eighty was kind of the first big movie to have this in it. And now we're still here, 2015. Curse of Chucky, 2013. The Awakening, 2011. That was a great movie. Wow. So many movies. 2009. Then we get into a lot of movies that I don't want to pronounce. 1966. Looks like it's Italian or something. 1983. I'm thinking about The Prisoner. (laughs) (laughs) Troll 2, 1990. Wow. Paranormal Activity 4, 2012. Another one I don't want to pronounce, 1973, The Skeptic. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> the Conjuring. So as you can see, there's there's quite a few of these that that have popped up over the years. Yeah, it's, it's become and, quite a horror trope. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but then we've got, what were some of the good creepy moments in this movie? I mean, one for me is you, you're hearing that rhythmic metallic thumping that would just yeah. start. Because you don't know if it's a chime or, or a pipe or what it is until it's finally explained. Yeah, right. It's especially right. creepy when he wakes up at six a.m. and he's crying because he's had a, a nightmare about his wife and his daughter dying, and and then that starts immediately. It's really jarring. But uh, I think one of my favorite bits is just I, as Blake was saying, I love the progression of the film, and it just starts out so gently. Uh, it's it doesn't have jump scares and things like that it's just really gradual in in the way it exacerbates but I love the way it starts with him playing the piano or one of the keys isn't playing and he ends up leaving the room and then that key plays by itself when he leaves yeah so I I think that's it seemed like that's really fun it's not literally inspired by it but it seemed like heavily influenced by uh the Robert Wise uh, film The Haunting uh, which is based on the story, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. And a lot of the effects are they're psychological, but the use of sound and just showing pictures of the house, scenes of the house and making you dread 
mm-hmm. further. And then, and then sometimes making you dread, don't go behind there. Don't go there. Don't. And then he does. And he keeps doing these things. You no, 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 stop, please. No, stop. Well, it's actually a creepy scene when, when he goes yeah. up to the, the child's room. Um, yes. Let, let's talk about the whole lack of jump scares. And it was it was no need for it at all. When he does go upstairs and he's trying to get into that little room, you know, he knocks the, the lock off with the hammer and then he's slamming his body against the door. He hits it twice and then he pulls back for the third time and the door just gradually opens all by mm-hmm. itself. And you can tell that it was not going to open before as hard as he was hitting it and that was just such an amazing moment to me it was like oh that is creepy um there were a few scenes like that where a door would just open just very gently a creak open and absolutely and just, um, yeah it was, I mean, because in a sense the 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 ghost here uh again it's a spoiler thing but the ghost here is that of a child that was murdered and the child seems to be cons- like the child seems to simultaneously have amazing powers but yet to be constrained in this ability to directly communicate. It can't just mm-hmm. come out and say, here's what's going on. Please go fix this. It's mm-hmm. got to well, like, it seems like it's limited in some way. It's very interesting. It almost seems like it was waiting for him to uh, come into the house because what's that quote? I guess we'll be coming up to that shortly. Oh, um, yes. The, the lady from the historical society. I don't know how far along that is. in the. the oh, just, just a few slides away. Because the next big thing was the seance. That was one of the best, oh. I think, representations of a great seance. Now, cause it was it's really well done. Yeah, when he goes up to that room and he finds the wheelchair and, and the, the, uh, um, the music box and, and you know, things like that, the metal tub. Well, the know, music box and the fact that that plays... A, a tune that he thought he had just composed yes that was really neat yeah yeah he's a musician Beautiful. it was like the the song itself was haunting him he thought he'd made it up and it was actually an older song yeah it's, it's right. very cool because it seems like what had happened is is people had come and, and this is all subtext i mean it's not really explicitly stated but people had come and stayed at the place and were being scared away by the hauntings Mm-hmm. But the historical society didn't want people to know that. So they were sort of suppressing it. He comes along and he's been opened up raw because of the death of his wife and child. So maybe he, in a sense, even though he's not psychic per se, he seems to be more open and susceptible to the communication from the ghost. Mm-hmm. And he wants to help. He's he's really kind of a, a, a musician and a troubleshooter. So yeah, yeah he has an affinity with the child and, yeah. and certainly going through all of his personal objects upstairs, the journal and the, seeing the wheelchair and his toys. Uh, yeah, I think he really seems to have some kind of link to the, the ghost. And, and they do uh, in every it, every horror movie where they do this is my favorite part. The research phase where they go to the library and this is before the Internet. So they go back and they hit the uh, microfilm and microfish. Ah, oh, so good. I love it. I love the library trip. So we get and we thought that was really interesting too, because shortly we'll start to get into the folklore and the facts behind the movie. The difference. But yeah. but yeah, we we just realized uh, that in the the movie he goes back and he tries to do some research into the history of the house, uh, and yet in the folklore and the true story, the, the fellow goes straight to psychics, goes straight to the paranormal. He doesn't go to the library and do research. He just immediately turns to talking to psychics. Right. Exactly. Calls the movie's more skeptical in some ways. It is. Yeah. But that's that's what makes a good movie. If you've got a good skeptic that poo-poos everything, and by the end they're converted to a believer, that's a good horror movie right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, if you look at the plot, I mean, the plot is 
here we go. The plot is a child was murdered because the child was not necessarily healthy and stood to inherit a bunch of money. So mm-hmm. the parent was being left out of the will. So the, the will skipped a generation. But until the child reached maturity, the parent would have been in charge of the, the fortune. And so the parent decides the solution here is get rid of the sick child, replace it with a healthy child. Changeling. A changeling, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then the healthy child grows up to be a senator and is super wealthy. And so the plan worked, except for this pesky ghost going around trying to get things settled and point out that he's actually been a victim. So At the last minute. The guy yeah, was, really, really, really. So the thing is, the shocking thing is, I you watch this amazing movie, this convoluted plot, really cool horror. I love the, I love the pace. I love everything about this movie. Mm-hmm. Yet you find out it's allegedly based on a true story, and you have to wonder how could this possibly be based on a true story? This is a ridiculous story. <laughs> Yet it is. So explain. It's loosely based on some loosely folk- well allegedly based on a true story yeah. right you know. let, let, let's hit just a few more things here uh, let, let's talk about the fact that i think this is one of the first uh movies that really showed automatic writing uh for yes. example and uh it, which was a great thing to watch because not only were you watching this woman scribble and write these things out but you're hearing this man sort of announce what she's writing as she's doing it and it created dramatic. really dramatic uh, it's feeling. simultaneously dramatic and as close to cool spiritualism sort of stuff as i've ever seen portrayed oh yeah, yeah. the psychic is in that trance yeah. and she's just kind of staring into the distance and communicating it, with the, the spirit and it's very scary it, it could have been campy it could have been terrible but it isn't it's really well done so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and then then we've got the whole evp scene uh which is uh when George T. Scott's uh, character is listening back to the tape of the seance and he's hearing the voice of the little boy. And I don't know how much that was portrayed in movies before this. I can't Uh, think, I mean, this doesn't mean anything, but I can't think of any examples of this before this. And I know, yeah. I think this is really, I think this has really influenced a lot of ghost hunting lore today because people will record uh, a room and ask questions. And then when they play it back, uh, have a subjective interpretation of what they think they heard, which is usually just ambient noise. But I think that that really has uh, driven that theory. I think so. I think so. If you look into the history of EVP, you'll probably see something about uh, Thomas Edison wanting to build some kind of radio to the dead. Which and there's true. not much. There's not much to that. But in 1959, yeah, even- there was a Swedish artist named Friedrich Jurgensen. Might have been Jurgensen. Uh, who published Probably. a book called Voice- <laughs> Voices from Space about his experiences recording the voices of dead people. And he called his work Audioscopic Research. And then a few years later, Konstantin Rodeve read Jurgensen's so, book. I guess so he read does it. Rao Dive, Rao Dive book. It looks like Rao Dive, but I, I, I went around online and, and heard it was pronounced Rodeve. But you know what? Uh, he, he was from Latvia and my mother-in-law is from Latvia. So we could find out. I'll, I'll have to ask her okay. about that. Cool. Uh, so uh, he, he read Jurgensen's book in 1964 and eventually started doing his own experiments, uh, thousands of them. And mm-hmm. he called the recordings electronic voice phenomena. He's the guy that coined EVP. And but he, he had published two, uh, two phrases for it. He had uh, electronic voice projection was one of them and electronic voice phenomenon was the other one. 
and they both fit under EVP. Isn't that great? Yeah, <laughs> very, very smooth. Um, and I think Phenomenon sounds creepier. Um, yeah, it but, does. Uh, was it him that also called it? Uh, there was another. There's yeah, another I, name. Trans, yeah. Trans, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Instrumental yeah. transcommunication. But that, that um, could be that Sarah Estep. I think she might have come up with that term. Yeah. But I know yeah, his, I mean, every different terms. He published he published his book, which uh, in I think sixty eight, and it became uh, the English translation was called Breakthrough, and came out in seventy one. But the thing about EVPs is they're very subjective. In in if you actually listen to the real examples, they they're things where they're ambiguous, and your mind can sort of resolve them into words, maybe. But in the movies, they're always really clear. What we hear in the Changeling and movies like The Sixth Sense and White Noise are extremely clear and understandable. And and I would be to be honest, if you were a ghost investigator and you hit something like this, you'd be, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like this is the lottery win right here. Yeah, absolutely not the reality with what people find. Unfortunately. I've been in lots of amusing situations where I've uh, seen ghost hunters argue over what was being said and no, they said this and no, the ghost said that. And it, it just proves how subjective it is. And, and then some of them will grade the quality of the recordings and say, this is a uh, an A grade recording or a C grade. But I mean, there's just no way to, to make very, this scientific. Very, it's just very not. gold dress, blue dress here. But you know, <laughs> you know, the, um, the thing about it is it's subjective, but it's, it's still creepy. I wish they were clear. That'd be fantastic. I wish there was yeah. that lack of ambiguity in, is really annoying. In the really film, it's very funny. Yeah. yeah, if the ghost got something to say, speak up. Yeah, yeah. basically, yeah. Although yeah. I think that the trailers for White Noise were really super creepy, but the film was a real letdown. Sorry. Yeah. 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 But then we have this lady. What was that? Uh, who I was referring to earlier from the Historical Society. Yeah, she's the head of the Historical Society. Yeah, I do think that that's one of the best quotes in the film where she refers to the house and says that it doesn't want people. You know, there's some question about your lease, Mr. Russell. What do you mean? That house shouldn't have been rented. Miss Norman rushed those papers through our attorney's office. She did not use proper channels. Why should anyone object? That house is not fit to live in. No one's been able to live in it. It doesn't want people. And that's why they haven't had anyone rent the house until this composer comes in and that even then um, the the other woman who's been assisting him, that she'd pushed that through their lawyers for, for him to get into the house because no one should be living in the house. Right. Yeah, this is Claire. Claire basically gets him into the house real quick. And it seems like she's circumvented the process, which the process would have been no. You're not allowed to stay there. It's haunted. Uh, also, she seems to be like like she, she was isn't clear on what's secret. going on, but she seems like she's working for the senator somehow. Yeah, she was yeah. in communication with the senator, and it just seemed very odd. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm very. She's she's suspicious. <laughs> yeah, some kind of link there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But so do you want to talk more about the film or do you want to well, start talking about the, the, the fact that the folklore, the folklore and the facts? Yeah, let's get into the folklore a little bit. It didn't actually happen in Seattle, the story. Yeah, let's start. We have to move it closer to Denver. Yeah. Yeah, Denver, Denver, Colorado. The, the house was on 1739 East 13th Avenue and it was constructed in 1892. Built Beautiful by, house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Henry Treat Rogers uh, was the man who had it built and, and uh, moved in. Now, Russell Hunter is the name of the composer. So the story goes that this Broadway composer was burnt out with uh, the, the hustle and bustle of New York and all the problems. So he came to Denver to get away from it all and uh, moved into this huge mansion by himself in 1969, in February of 1969. Now, supposedly the rent was $200 a month. And even at that time for a house that big, that was really good. But it's a big house, makes a lot of noises, creaks, and he's freaking out about everything. But he's, he's trying to keep his cool, you know, just wants to concentrate on his music. So after a little while, he keeps hearing the sound of a ball bouncing down the stairs. Um, never sees the ball, just can hear it. He keeps hearing this loud rhythmic, metallic thump that would happen so it started a little more infrequently but then got more and more frequent in terms of uh, once once a, a morning really it would happen and uh, he would often hear like voices coming from the fireplace so he was really starting to get freaked out Creepy. now one day he's rummaging around in this uh, closet and he finds that there's a, a hidden stairway so he pulls the boards off the wall and everything, and he goes up the stairway. And up at the top of the stairs is a door that's boarded up and locked and everything. And he breaks everything down and gets in the room. And as soon as the door opens, a red rubber ball rolls out and bounces down the stairs. Pretty creepy. Pretty creepy. But he goes in and he finds a journal in this trunk that's 100 years old. He finds uh, a uh, music box. There's a big cast iron tub in there, and uh, he finds a really old child's wheelchair all covered in cobwebs. So correct, correct my memory. Is it, this is 69, thereabouts? 69, yes. Okay, so the, that would make the journal 1869? Yes. Okay. Before the house was built. Right, yeah. So before the house was built, yeah. yeah. And you guys are totally ruining the folklore yeah. here. <laughs> Says he had constructed in 1892. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Now, people, yeah. People that like to believe folklore don't always read everything. So can you just go along with me for Sorry. a minute? So once he kind of uh, discovers this room, the activity in the home really steps up. It, it ramps up and uh, pictures are falling off of walls and drawers are opening and closing and there's all kinds of stuff going on. So he decides he's going to do some research into this and find out what's going on. So he contacts some psychics. Now, these psychics, they, they come over and they do a seance. And what they find out in the seance is that there was indeed a, a little boy that lived up in that room. And this was uh, 
back when the house was first built. Uh, he lived up in that room. And when he turned 18, he was set to inherit different figures here. $30 million, $70 million, $300 million, $700 million. So it depends on who you ask. He was going to inherit a lot of money. Um, all the money. Yeah, all the money in Denver. Now, the thing is, is he would have to make it to 18 years old to get that money. And the problem was he was sickly and they didn't think he was going to survive. So the family boarded him up into that room and adopted a similar looking child to take his place, the changeling. Now, the guy's really freaked out because now if he's got this really angry spirit in his house. What is he going to do? Well, the psychics tell him that the body is buried in South Denver off of South Dahlia Street. And uh, if he can go down there and talk to the people who own the house where, you know, the boy is now buried underneath it and let him dig, he'll find the body and he'll find a gold medallion that has the boy's name and his date of birth on it. And he can then take that as proof to the world, tell the child's story and bring some peace to this disturbed spirit. So he does indeed go down to this house. He speaks with the family and explains why he needs to tear up a, a closet floor and dig underneath. And they say, please leave. Um, <laughs> as you would. As you would. So after a few weeks, they're getting all kinds of phenomenon in their house. Suddenly things are going crazy until to the point they call him back up and say, please come dig. So he does. He goes and he, he digs, uh, tears up the floor, digs it, finds the bones and finds the gold medallion. So now he's got a good friend named William Gray, who's a screenplay writer. They get together, they write up the whole story, they sell it to a Toronto film company, and we have The Changeling starring George C. Scott. And now this poor spirit is at rest. And uh, that's that's basically the folklore behind the story. So the, the folklore was that the boy was just sort of barricaded into the room and, and just they locked it off and locked him away or, or? Uh, well they, they did lock him away but he was i mean ultimately he was murdered because he kind of he was a drain on the family because you know they had to keep feeding him and you know and, and did they it, specify and how or he was just starved or he was he was drowned and that's why there drowned. was that thumping he was banging okay. on the side of the tub as he was being drowned so that sound would come back every you know early morning in the in the wee hours of the morning it would come back and and uh uh, disturb the residents of the house. That, it, that's what always freaked me out when I like looked into this I, because I thought, oh, based on a true story. So I guess there's a few elements that are supposed to be true in the movie. No, like the movie is allegedly <laughs> completely true. All the every crazy thing is supposed to like really happen. And then, well, okay, maybe we can find some testable components because that's what us skeptic movie ruiners like to do. That, that is what we do. Let, yeah. let, so let me show you where this house was situated really quickly. Um, so you can kind of see. Now, the house was torn down in the mid-70s. So, oh, it didn't even make it to the movie. So no, pretty no. soon after he had allegedly rented the place. Right, right. Might be worth mentioning. I mean, you may have already said this if I missed. the. the uh, he was renting this house so he could do what exactly? He wanted to be able to get away from the rat race and just kind of concentrate on his music and not be pressured by, you know, the, the business side of music. So, okay. In other words, he was unemployed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so uh, is there, is there evidence that he actually did rent the house? 
there is no evidence. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate because of the fact that records weren't very well kept at the time. And you would think that there would be like phone records and stuff. There actually aren't. So wow. it's it's not that he definitely wasn't there. It's he, there definitely aren't records to show whether he was or wasn't. But the reason he was in Colorado wasn't necessarily to get away from the rat race. It was because his parents owned a hotel in Boulder that uh, he was going to help them run as they were getting up in years. And that was the real story. But the, the thing is, is uh, supposedly while he was doing that, he wanted a place he could go to just work on his music. And that was this big. That is a little, a little strange, though, that he should be moving to Colorado to, to either live or work with his parents in Boulder, which is still quite some distance from Denver. It really uh, is. It's a nice drive, but it's, it would be inconvenient <laughs> in the winter. It, I would say that. It, would, yeah. it yeah. absolutely would be. Absolutely. Okay, so here on the edge of Cheeseman Park. Now, as you remember in the movie, it was Chessman Park near Seattle, uh, yeah. which I don't think exists. It might. I don't know. No, I believe um, that was made up for the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Cheeseman Park is very real. And as we come down here, you see this East 13th Avenue sign right here. This high rise, surprisingly enough, was not there. Um, but this is the, the parking lot where the uh, Changeling House sat. Now, as, as wow. we kind of zoom in, you can see that some of the older houses are still around and uh, hanging out here. But this one wiped yeah. out right there in the in the 70s. Um, and aren't there some claims now that there's still ghostly activity in the parking lot? You know, I, I have heard of actually people in the apartment complex here still feeling like there are things going on there. But mm -hmm. the problem with that is that Cheeseman Park itself has so many legends and folklore around it that and it, it would be hard to say if there was a ghost, where, where would it be from, the Changeling House or Cheeseman Park? It, it, yeah. Does Russell Hunter make any connection or link between the Changeling House and Cheeseman Park? He doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is the Changeling House was built two years after Cheeseman Park stopped being the city cemetery. So they had changed it into a park, and two years later, the Changeling House was built. And then by the time Russell Hunter had rented the house, uh, oddly enough, he didn't have good uh, Wi-Fi um, and good internet connection <laughs> to be able to actually look up what had happened in Cheeseman Park. So as far he as- He just wasn't was, aware of the lore. Was not aware of what really in happened history. in Cheeseman Park at all. This, and, this, in, in a sense, in a real sense, this is like uh, this guy rents a house across the street from the Bates Motel and never mentions the Bates Motel in his story. Right. Like, right. like I mean, like Cheeseman <laughs> Park has such an amazing amount of creepy lore around it. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. yep. You, you want to explain that a little bit, Matthew? Because I know that's you've, you've done tours in that area. But yeah, now you can see how big Cheeseman Park is. It's it's a pretty sizable park, and and you see there's a Congress Park over here, and mm -hmm. right here's the Botanic Gardens. Um, this entire area right here was a cemetery, and when I say was, it actually still is. Long ago in in uh, Denver, um, in in most cities uh, back around that time, it was really important to have a beautiful cemetery. It was the kind of the city's crown jewel, so it it was kind of uh, one of these things where. Denver wanted this land. It was kind of on a nice hill. It was a really beautiful area. You could see all around it. None of these houses were here, obviously. Um, and uh, it's about two miles away from downtown Denver. So there was not much in between 
And it was just this beautiful area. Now, it, it actually was a Native American burial ground before. And they always say these kinds of things. Well, you know, a lot of Native Americans didn't have burial grounds. So it's usually a, a load of crap when someone says, oh, it's an ancient Indian burial ground. Usually wasn't. In this case, this was an Arapaho burial ground. And it was sacred. Now, when the federal government acquired it from the Arapaho, there was a stipulation that if they were going to do anything with this land, they could not disturb the Native American bodies that were buried there. And they were buried about six feet down. So anybody that got buried there in the cemetery could only be buried about three feet down. On top of the fact that the soil in this area was bentonite, which when it gets wet, it kind of moves around a lot. So you've got a bunch of skeletons now that are shallow and they're moving around every time it rains or we have a good snow melt. So it was really just a recipe for horror movies, you know, stuff, but uh, is not in the changing at all. Doesn't even factor into it. It's interesting because when things started going awry with this whole Cheeseman Park thing, bodies started surfacing again because of the soil and things like that. And it became a real concern about the health aspect of it. There was a lot of people that were like, this is this could spread disease. Tuberculosis was all the rage. All the kids were doing it. So they, they were really concerned about diseases coming up and things like that. So they, they we have to move these people and the park or the, the cemetery is falling into disrepair anyway. Let's turn it into a park and get the bodies out. As they were moving the bodies out, there was a problem with the supply of coffins to put the bodies into because when you're only three feet down, and the ground is kind of, uh, it'll dry out, get wet, dry out, get wet. If you're six feet down, it stays damp all the time. But three feet down, it doesn't necessarily do that. And it starts to get acetic, and it will start eating through things. So it was eating through these coffins. It was eating through the clothes and the flesh. So in a short amount of time, these, these bodies were becoming skeletons very quickly. Everything was just getting eaten away. So it was a pretty frightening thing for a lot of a lot of people but it was, the big problem is the coffins were being eaten away so when they were pulling up these caskets and everything they were falling apart so they had to be put into new caskets new coffins to be moved to a different cemetery but the, the uh undertaker mcgovern was the, the guy who was uh, in charge of it all and he's doing his best but he's running out of coffins lois bitter <laughs> yeah he was now there's a lot of folklore about undertaker mcgovern and what an evil person he was most of it's not true. Um, it, you know, they really like to portray him as the, the worst guy in the world. But no, it's not true. He really worked hard to get all this done in the time they allotted him. But he's running out of coffins. So he gets a hold of them. And he's like, look, I'm running out of coffins here. And they're like, well, use children's coffins. Just break the bodies in half if you have to. So now he's having to break bodies in half. He's gonna, They're like, hey, we'll pay you per coffin. So if you're getting paid twice as much for each body, that's, that's the way it has to be. So the city knew. The city government knew what was going on. He wasn't being sneaky by doing this. This was part of the deal. So again, he's not evil Undertaker McGovern. So he's going along doing all this. As as he's doing this, you got people that are grave robbing like crazy because people are uh, in the the upper class are getting buried with a lot of expensive jewelry and things like that. Some people just need shoes. So there's a lot of grave robbing going on. And the Chinese, they had their own area in there and they had a different sort of ritual that they would only consider the bones to be sacred 
And uh, they have the whole thing called a second burial and everything. We won't go into it right now. But did, but, they, did, they, did the government like pass any rules about stop doing that? Like desist with the deceased? Nope. Nope. Okay. <laughs> so so you, you've got all these these uh, Chinese bodies that they're, they're being scraped of everything except for the bones. So they're burying the bones and then they leave this big pile of um, not bones. Nice. So, so you got all Egg these streets going on. <laughs> it's just so, so nice to talk about. But yeah, so you've got all these things going on. And finally, the newspapers get a hold of it. And the, the headline was The Work of Ghouls. And uh, this is actually the, uh, the, <laughs> the headline here. And, and of course, they're, they're really making it sound horrible. So well, it kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is. There's a lot of things going on, but we won't say that it was any one person's fault. Yeah. But at this point, you know, there was there was like fifteen hundred bodies, I think. You know, fifty thousand bodies, I think, in in the whole area because it's a huge cemetery, and they were not done getting everybody out when this headline came out, and the city government said, "Boom, we're done. Everybody out of the pool. You know, we're sealing it up right where it is." So there's still two to 5,000 bodies still there today. And, and a lot of people question me about that. Oh, are you sure the bodies are still there? Actually, I am. Uh, and the reason I am is that there I am cleaning off a humerus from one of the uh, skeletons that were pulled up. Did some work with the uh, human identification lab uh, at Metro State University. And we reconstructed five skeletons that uh, we pulled up. And uh, it was a very interesting day getting to really hang out with the dead people at Cheeseman Park. It was uh, a, a stunning experience, to say the very least. Yeah, we, with this history, it's just astonishing that it wasn't connected to the change story at all. Just these two phenomena right next to each other. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if you've got a kid, like, haunting you, you don't need to go across the street to find the rest of the ghosts. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, so they, they totally missed all of the, the amazing things that have gone on at the, at the uh Cheeseman Park. So we've got problems here, though, when we talk about this folklore. One, like I said, there's no record of Russell Hunter living at the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that doesn't mean necessarily that he wasn't there, but that's a problem. The inheritance size, whether it's 30 million or 700 million, really no one in Denver had that kind of money at that time. And, you know, it, it would have been well known. You know, at this point, it would have been really well known. Well, what about the the kid? Was there any kind of record of a child ever being in the home of um, Henry Treat Rogers or death certificate? Yeah, well, Henry Treat Rogers. Any other family? Henry Treat Rogers had no children, um, no children at all. He had uh, a a niece and a nephew that stayed with him for a while. They all they they had no sicknesses. Uh, they didn't live with them, you know, their whole lives, just uh, stayed there a little while. And uh, they weren't seemingly replaced by uh, any body snatchers of any kind. So that that doesn't fit. And that kind of blows a hole in the whole thing right there. Uh, it does. And is there any other kind of evidence like the journal? Did that ever surface? The journal never surfaced. And, and then the thing is, is, you know, you guys brought it up before. You know, when the house was built, doesn't match up with a hundred year journal that would have been there. Yeah, 40 years before, you know, it just doesn't seem like it. But, you know, on the other side, when they tore this place down in the 70s, it was interesting because they say that as, uh, you know, this bulldozer is knocking down one of the walls, that the wall exploded and killed the bulldozer driver. 
Other reports say the entire house exploded. Other reports say that the house imploded, like at the end of Poltergeist. You you should mention, by the way, you Cheeseman Park and the Poltergeist. Cheeseman Park, Park, actually, yeah, was one of the places that inspired the movie Poltergeist, yeah. uh, which you know we may be talking about in another episode of Debased on a True Story. It can uh, happen. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, you know, when you go back and look, there's no records. There of- isn't, right, exactly. There, there's all kinds of interesting records around uh, construction and destruction uh, stuff happening. So when... A, a house falls onto a bulldozer operator that makes the newspapers it really does but it didn't this time there's nothing <laughs> like that there's nothing like that at all exactly uh, exactly so it, it's a bummer you know i mean when we go back though we haven't been able to find any blueprints or plans for the house so we don't know maybe there was a hidden staircase in there you know right. maybe this room did exist maybe russell hunter actually did stay in the house and he found these things up in that attic we don't know for sure the the, the facts sort of point away from that being true but we don't know for certain that he wasn't there because records were poorly kept. So we don't know if, if he stayed there or not. So this is so interesting that neighbors never came forward and said anything. Uh, I mean, it seems like anecdotally, if you, you go and read the history boards and chat rooms and things like that, where forums where people have spoken about the movie, it seems like uh, quite a few people who knew Russell Hunter said that he was known for embellishing his story and known for embellishing this this particular story. Um, but, yeah, you'd think that, that neighbours or someone would have come forward and, and said something over the years and it's just been exactly. silent. Exactly. Yeah. So briefly, except that we don't, we can't prove he stayed there and we can't prove that there was ever a child because there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that. And we can't prove that there was um, an inheritance. Or- there was an inheritance. <laughs> or a murder, or a body found to placate a ghost. And why would that ghost be any more angry than all the ghosts that supposedly were right, right across the street? We got no will. We've got... <laughs> oh, but apparently Rogers did own land in South Denver. Yeah, so um, there's that. Really I mean, well, we so, should probably but... do a chart about things that claimed and things that hold <laughs> yeah. up and what doesn't. <laughs> yeah. But it seems like basically nothing holds up except that there was another piece of property owned by him. But do not let you let that keep you from watching this movie. No, no, it's a fantastic movie. It's fun. It's creepy. It's scary. It's awesome. Whatever he was smoking to come up with this stuff, I, I, I'm happy he did. No, it's good stuff. It's a really good movie. Isn't there one more uh, theory that he based, uh, that, that Russell Hunter based the story on that of a, a senator, a Colorado senator oh, yeah. was who it was around? I think so. Yeah, and the the timing didn't seem right on that. Yeah, that one didn't match up either. I mean, it yeah. might have been a, a source of some inspiration. Um, and that, you know, we got to kind of split hairs there a little bit too. You know, we talk about based on a true story. Um, what do they really mean when they say that? Are they talking, you know, that uh, some of some some little fact in all of this inspired me to write this fiction? Or, you know, what are, what are they actually I saying think- saying based on a true story? Yeah, I think the, the claim is that he based the story on the Phipps family and they silenced him. So we had to change all of the details. Well, he did a terrible job of being silent. <laughs> he did. But, but, I mean, like, he was, um, I'm just going to say ballsy in his approach. I mean, like, he just made a lot of straight up, oh, this happened and this happened and this happened. And it didn't seem like much of the media really pushed back on that. Uh, you. You do eventually get some really cool. We'll put some links to that in the show notes. The uh, uh, you get some interesting sort of debunkings from uh, some local Denver groups, but but that's much later. That's like in the nineties, I think. So 
yeah um, it, it it gets a good solid decade of just running with it so yeah yeah it really does really does and I, you know, i'm kind of glad because it, it was a lot of fun and you know we can sit here and tear it apart but you know well it's, it's let's talk about that i mean like the, the point of this this series is not necessarily to to tear things apart but it is there's this concept that happens in in the movie industry and marketing that if we say it's based on a true story it gets more play with audiences because it's it's more scary because they can imagine it really happened Mm-hmm. This one seemed a little like even, I mean, even for that kind of thing, it seems a little over the top with what they're claiming. And as we go through some of these movies in the series, some of them are much more based on things that might have happened. And some of them are are wildly divergent from the source material, but maybe the source material is true. So we're going to get an interesting spectrum of, of stuff to work with on this. This could be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, I, I think and, so. Uh, Okay. Do we have any questions from the audience that I think we've been following? There was no death in Russell Hunter's family with a wife and daughter or anything like that. That that didn't happen. So, no, yeah. there's, there's been a lot of fun chat going on. I'm not seeing a lot of questions directed at us, but they are having a fun time watching and hanging out, which I love that. That's great. So. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just a, a shame that uh, there were ne- never any artifacts like the the music box and the journal. I think that would have been really fascinating and interesting he didn't fabricate anything like that like create something himself to to bolster and support his story absolutely you know and it's fun because you know with the cheeseman park you know bodies that uh, i had uh, had the opportunity to work with um there were lots of artifacts other than the the bodies there was uh, lots of uh, uh, casket hardware there were combs and buttons and and different things that survived uh, you know made out of made out of bone or ivory and things like that uh, so there, there were artifacts there, but nothing from the, you know, changeling story. So, <laughs> so which story do you think is more famous than the, the changeling story or, story or the Cheeseman Park stories? <laughs> At this point, because of the Internet, I think the Cheeseman story has really gained a lot because of the interest in uh, paranormal reality TV. The, the story is so in-depth and they've really had a good opportunity to malign a lot of people and create villains and heroes and, and everything throughout it that uh, it really gained a lot of steam and the changeling kind of got forgotten along the way. And, you know, I'll often bring up the changeling and people will be like, never heard of it. You know, not even the Angelina Jolie one, which is, you know, maybe justified. I don't know. I haven't seen it. <laughs> but it holds up well. I mean, I, I put it up in like my top, probably my top five ghost movies. I mean, me too. Yeah. Wow. So it's That's a, it's a good, it, for you, Blake. it is, I've seen a lot, but it's a goodie. It's a real good, and partly because a lot of what it does is, is it doesn't necessarily show you, it hints at things. And so you get to use your imagination and I don't know about you, but my imagination is really vivid. No, Russell Hunter passed away in uh, August, 1996. So he's no longer a composer. Now he's a decomposer. <laughs> Did he leave behind any family, I wonder, and, and anyone who yeah, I kept know. up his stories? I, I never saw in any of the newspaper articles, I never saw anything about him being like having a family. So maybe he does. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But, uh, but there are a few other haunted houses or supposedly haunted houses in that area too, aren't there? I mean, aside from the Changeling House and uh, from Cheeseman Park, there are a number of other places which you the croak patterson mansion is another very famous one and uh there are a few others uh in the area but uh croak patterson mansion is, is probably one of the big ones and that one's got a great great story a lot of stories 
behind it. It's like everyone that, that lived there throughout the uh, history or the time when it was a law office. So the time it was a nightclub, you know, all these, these crazy different things. It was a restaurant for a while. And every, in every sort of iteration of this place, it has creepy stories to go with it. And uh, it's, it's, it's a fun one. And I've spent many nights in that place doing investigations and there's, there's no way you can't be creeped out by the place. It's remarkable. So let's talk That's about a strange it. Strange place. And then the botanical gardens as well. They're reputedly haunted too. Botanic gardens is, uh, yeah, it's, it's part of the uh, same. Botanic. Yeah. I, I think it, it kind of goes by both names, you know, yeah. botanical, botanic, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's part of that same cemetery. And uh, it was just a few years ago, they un- unveiled quite a few bodies as they were building the new uh, parking lot there. Um, <laughs> Great. Hey, yeah. so, you know, when they were actually originally converting it from a cemetery to a park and they were dealing with all those bodies, was that considered part of a, the uh, big Denver ghoul rush? <laughs> <laughs> just one pun right at the end. I just a little... And you take all your, yeah. all your drinking right there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Are we ready for our exciting conclusion? Well, I, you know, um, I want to thank you guys for uh, letting me be a part of this. Um, Thanks now, for coming on the show. You really know a lot about these stories and it was really cool to talk to you. Well, I, I appreciate it. And I, I do want everyone to know that um, I, I really want to push the whole idea of uh, going and, and becoming a patron. Uh, for their uh, Patreon page, and I, I am you. not involved in that in any sense. No, no, no I, I completely I unbiased. And uh, yeah, well, also, they, they, I actually don't get any of that whatsoever. That's uh, that's something that supports the monster talk itself. So I just, but I'm I'm a big believer in monster talk myself. So yeah, yeah we're we real. Should, so. we should also thank everyone for watching this or listening, depending on where you're you're coming across this. And yes. certainly, if you're watching through YouTube, if you can. Uh, subscribe to our channel That'd and be great. thumbs up for this video and yeah, um, like and share it. YouTube algorithm. We've got uh, close to 20 of these that we're looking at doing, so this should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks Lots so. of fodder. All right. Okay. Well, so, thanks for joining us. Good night. Good morning. So Good night. And I look forward to the next time. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an episode of our Monster Talk YouTube series debased on a true story, covering the 1980 movie The Changeling. We hope you enjoyed it, and there's many more episodes on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash monster talk. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. 
Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Clever, Food with Mark Bittman, and When Things Go Wrong. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Here's hoping for a better, healthier future where we don't even have to think about this anymore. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you for listening, and links to the Changely movie and articles about the alleged true story are in our show notes. been a monster house presentation ohio ready for some quick mental health facts let's go nearly two million ohioans live with a mental health condition in the u.s more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide so why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.